There's a moment that Mohamed Dolemi will never forget. It was the first time in my life I made a lie. And I lied to a child. It was 20 years ago. Dulemi was a college student at the University of Baghdad in Iraq. He was living in Fallujah. The U.S. had just launched its invasion. And a warning here, this story and the rest of this episode include descriptions of the realities of war. There is a shooting on the highway in Fallujah that resulted in many deaths of civilians. And I saw what I've never thought I would see in my life. So many cars shot. So many people lying on the side of the street. One of the cars was a pickup truck. <clears throat> Father was on driver's seat. He was killed. The mother was in passenger seat. She was killed. Their child, he looked about 10 years old, had survived. Rescuers had pulled him out, laid him on his side, so that he couldn't see the truck, couldn't see what had happened to his parents. He was badly injured, but he refused to go to the hospital. He said, I don't want to live if my father and mother are dead. And he was holding my hand in such a force. It was amazing for me how a 10-year-old can do that. And he said, please, I don't want to be an orphan. If they are dead, let me die. And that was my first lie in my life. I was like, no, you're going to be okay. I'm going to take you to hospital. And he said, Swear by God, they are alive. And I did. After the war, Mohammed Dulemi moved to the U.S. and now works as an engineer in Virginia. But the invasion that began in 2003 and the occupation that followed altered the course of Dulemi's life, as it did for so many Iraqis and U.S. service members. Some of the changes are obvious. Some are less visible. Dulemi says he lost track of that boy he saved, but he's still living with the memory of that day. It changed my life in so many ways. And whenever someone is talking about life, I remember that kid who held my hand and said, swear by God that my life will be okay and I will not live an orphan. Consider this. The war that started on this day in 2003 toppled a brutal dictator but ushered in years of chaos and violence. We'll hear from the young Iraqis who lived through it all, and are trying to build a more promising future for themselves and their country. From NPR, I'm Adrian Florido. It's Monday, March 20th. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. It's Consider This from NPR. When the U.S. launched Operation Iraqi Freedom 20 years ago, NPR's Eric Westervelt was there. He was embedded with the lead attack elements of the U.S. Army's 3rd Infantry Division. Uh, I remember this, you know, sustained barrage, the thuds echoing. Artillery? Yeah, give me up. And the U.S. officer I was with told his soldiers, you know, this is the start of liberation of Iraq. Sound of freedom right there. They were about to go into battle. Remember the context, the invasion started when the nation was still sort of traumatized by 9-11. And the nation was told, you know, look, this dictator, Saddam, 
He's hatching all these plots with chemical, biological, maybe even nuclear weapons. Of course, we now know that was, you know, a manufactured threat. Cheney, Rumsfeld, and others manipulated, cherry-picked, or completely manufactured intelligence to wildly exaggerate the threat. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. In April, as the push to take Baghdad intensified, Eric was with U.S. troops as they closed in on Saddam Hussein International Airport. This first push into Baghdad to the airport was really an intense, fast, violent, armored raid they called a thunder run up Highway 8. And you had Iraqis firing from rooftops and garages with RPGs and with AK-47s. The other really difficult part in this attack, Iraqi civilians were coming down the southbound lane, and some civilians were caught uh, in the crossfire. You know, one of the most uh, haunting memories I have is peering out the back of the Bradley, recording every moment I could, and, and seeing a car on fire that was filled with uh, civilians, and a small child was standing outside the car, you know, just screaming uh, in horror as he watched uh, his parents die. And you had both sides firing a lot. And any civilians that were there uh, were in just incredible and grave risk. The U.S. eventually seized the airport, and a now famous scene unfolded in Baghdad. Iraqi civilians, with the help of U.S. Marines, toppled the statue of Iraq's fallen dictator. NPR's Ann Garrels was in the Iraqi capital. Hasib Nouri, a taxi driver, tossed his shoes at a statue of Saddam, a deeply insulting gesture in the Arab world. Thank you, America, he said, for removing this dictator. But tearing down statues, as the Soviets once saw, is easy. Filling the vacuum will be much more difficult. Here's Eric Westervelt again. While the initial invasion and overthrow of Saddam was briefly considered a success, I mean, the occupation was horrifically mismanaged. It unleashed years of bloody sectarian civil war and trauma, and later it it helped give rise to more terrorists with the rise of ISIS, uh, who for a brief period controlled large parts of Iraq and Syria. But we at that point didn't fully realize that this was just the start of Iraq's long nightmare. A generation of Iraqis grew up in the years after that invasion. Recently in Baghdad, NPR's Ruth Sherlock spoke with young people about the future they want for Iraq and about how the beginning of that invasion launched 20 years ago shaped the rest of their lives. In Baghdad today, Hajar Hadi tells me how the dust storms had darkened the skies in what almost seemed like an omen. I still remember that day. The sky was all orange. We would hear the the bombs and the rockets being thrown. I'm with Hadi in a cafe with a hipster vibe. There's colorful art on the walls and young men and women smoking shisha pipes. Hadi was just nine years old when the invasion began. 
Now she's a PhD student studying molecular bacteriology and an assistant lecturer at the University of Baghdad. It's impressive by any measure, but even more so given that she lived in a war. We started taking shelter more and more and uh, no going out. Um, we even had days, specific days, to go grab food and come back. Most of the time in those early days of the invasion, the family had no electricity. She says her dad would sometimes use the car battery to power a radio just so that they could hear the news. Later, things got even worse. Most of our, of our teenage years were more scary-like because you would see a lot of uh, dead bodies lying on the street or you would fear for your family being taken by a bombing or being kidnapped. The crowd in this cafe represents the first generation that's grown up almost entirely since Saddam Hussein was ousted. They've lived through the years of insurgency, sectarian war, ISIS, and now a government that's elected but rife with corruption and struggling to provide public services like electricity still. Hadi says there aren't many opportunities for scientists. It's been 20 years and we're still kind of in the same loop. Other people her age are still working to realize a democracy that's something like what was promised when Saddam was ousted. One of those is Mohammed Al-Tamimi. He was six years old when American soldiers entered his grandmother's house where the family had gathered to shelter from the war. His uncle tried to stop them from roughly searching the women as well as the men. At that point, he says, several U.S. troops let him have it, kicking and punching his uncle until he was on the ground. Tamimi says his dad then threw a blanket over his head to try to protect him from seeing more. Through our interpreter, Tamimi then talks about the years that Iraq descended into violence and the failings of the new state. All this misery situation is because of the invasion of, of the Americans. Older Iraqis sometimes say the current generation just doesn't remember how bad life was under Saddam, too. Tamimi recognizes that, but says that fact doesn't make life any better now. He pulls a string of worry beads through his hands as he tells me how he's trying to make a better Iraq. He's a university student and activist. I first met him a couple of years ago during the elections that he and fellow protesters had helped to bring about. But what happened is uh, it's not what we dreamed about. The American replaced the tyrant regime by... With worse people. In a local political office, Tamimi shows me videos he filmed of the massive crowds of protesters in 2019 that gathered to call for an end to corruption. The government response was brutal. Over 600 people died in the demonstrations that followed. Still, the movement did manage to unseat the government and force early elections under a new law that was meant to make the vote a little more representative. If the situation is improving since the time of Saddam, many Iraqis say it's in spite of the US invasion and not because of it. And it's largely the effort of these young Iraqis who yearn for the normal trappings of life found in other countries. We arrived at this upscale cafe and restaurant in Baghdad and there's a live band playing and men and women and families 
sign by the door quotes the Eagles song, you can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. I sit down with Yusuf Abbas. He's 24 and a civil engineering student, and he works as a cake chef to fund his studies. He has this thick, curly hair, a trendy moustache and beard, and smiles a huge smile as he tells me why he loves coming here. I love the music. You love music? Yes. What kind of music do you like? Hip-hop. 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 I love Billie Eilish, uh, 50 Cent, uh, Tupac. He wanted to take part in the massive protests against the government, he says, but his father begged him not to go because they were so dangerous. You, you guys are like the first generation that's really grown up after the invasion happened. What do you want to see Iraq become? Like, he says he wants to see the state not so torn apart by different political parties from different religious sects. He wants a more developed healthcare and education system. And he wants Iraq to be the kind of place that people from all over would want to visit. I ask him if his is the generation that can make this happen. Yes, he says, because he believes his generation is less ideological, less sectarian than his parents' generations. There are a lot of engineers, doctors, different educated people. They can develop Iraq. It's an optimistic vision, but one that clashes pretty quickly with reality. Just moments later, he tells me that he, like so many other Iraqis, is trying through the United Nations to seek asylum abroad. There's work to be done in Iraq, he agrees, but the corruption and destruction of this country is so great, and he needs a better chance at life now. NPR's Ruth Sherlock in Baghdad. Consider this from NPR. I'm Adrian Florido.